Steve, thank you. Oh, wow, well, it worked. I just had to move. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to need it today. Um, last night I was watching, I don't know if you've seen this, I wanted to play it this morning, um, but there's a, a video that's been going around, going viral. Um, I wanted to play it, but some of you would get mad at me because it's really graphic. Um, it's a video about a gosling throwing itself off of a cliff. A gosling means a young goose. Um, throwing itself off a cliff. Have you seen this video? It's, it's, you, you need to watch it. It's too graphic for me to play in church, but it's, it's, it's on the top of this massive cliff. I mean, ridiculous. It's hard to get perspective of just how big this cliff is. But you see the cutest little baby gosling, and he's just looking over the edge, and, and, and then all of a sudden he flings itself off the cliff. And then starts floating down and floating it, but not really floating, you know, as much as a gosling can do, falling. And it falls forever, and it's beautiful. And you're watching, and I don't know how many, it must be 20 seconds at least go by, it feels like. And you're like, what's going to happen to this gosling? Um, And then suddenly it just hits the cliff um, with a, a squeak of a squeaky toy. It hits the cliff. And I know that sounds sick, okay, but I'm going somewhere that's not as sick. It hits the cliff, and it squeaks. And then it falls another, I don't know, hundreds of feet, and hits, boom, and squeaks. And it keeps falling, and you're like, why is this a National Geographic video that went viral? This is sick. And then it hits the bottom, and its parents are waiting for it. And there's these two geese that just fly up. Mom and dad fly, and they're waiting for their babies to fling themselves off of the cliff. And this is how these geese make it to life. And then it showed all their brothers and sisters that didn't make it. And some make it, and some don't. And I was like, man. And it was crazy that I was watching this video, and I kept re-watching the video because it was just incredibly fascinating and these parents waiting in anticipation, what's going to happen to my child? Um, and while I'm watching this video, I got a text message from Bob. And he is deeply in love with the kids in his ministry. Um, the ministry in the park downtown has been beautiful. Um, we're having, um, John, did you get a count yesterday? What? We're getting close to 200 people coming to the park. Just this last year, just recently, these are people that have given their lives to Christ in baptism. Nicole, Antonio, Michael, Leanne, Laura, Stephanie, Lexi, Donnie, Bruce, JD, Tim and Tara, Skylar, Beth. Just recently, we had Miranda, Jake, Isaiah, and Avery all give their lives to Christ. And we're seeing people giving their lives, and it's beautiful. But in the exact same text message, he says, and this is who we lost. This last weekend, we lost Irish. We've lost Shelly, Doc, Christy, Brett, all recently to alcohol, heroin, and meth. And he just wrote me this message. Satan is killing my kids. And I loved it. And it was just crazy that I had just finished watching this video. And I'm just watching this and I'm thinking, this is crazy, man. To invest yourself in somebody 
And you know what it is as a parent to invest yourself into somebody and say, man, I've done everything. But at some point, I've got to let you go. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about uh, the parable of the seeds. And I'm going to talk about the different soils and um, kind of touch on this theme. But whether the, the, the discussion is Moses, Joshua, here, Paul, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 13. Wherever you are, it seems like it's the same thing. It's, it's the world is against you. Everything is against you, and it's against your ministry. Satan has time on his side, it feels like. He wears us down and trains us to be nearsighted. I think that's one of the most difficult things in in my own ministry, and, and I know it's because of my own fault. But so many times you feel like it doesn't matter how exciting somebody is. It doesn't matter how excited they are about their faith. They give themselves to Christ. They're baptized into Christ. They give themselves. They're singing tears coming down their cheek. And there's this dark voice in the back of my mind says, what does it matter? Can they survive the next year? Can they survive the next five years? Can they survive the hypocrisy that they're going to face in the church? Can they survive the sin they're going to face in their own life? Can they survive the cliff that they're about to fall off of? Can they survive this? Satan's killing my kids. And I know Moses felt that way. Joshua felt that way. They had that voice in their head. The giants in the land are too big. They'll swallow you alive. The sun's too hot. The landscape too pitiless and barren. Not to mention your own personal limitations. You're inadequate. You're unqualified. You are not fit for this task. And you know it. Your own sin that confronts you, your own sin that's inside of you, you can't conquer that either. And these people, they will only break your heart in the end. You invest yourself into somebody and you know they're only going to break your heart. Why keep doing it, Paul? And this is where Paul is when he writes this letter. His heart is shattered, and I know you felt it over the last few weeks. His heart has been shattered because he's not with his kids. And instead, wolves are with his kids. And they're tearing their faith apart, and they're tearing the church apart. And this is what Paul is confronting. And he just gets, what he says in this chapter floored me. There's just two levels to it, and... Towards the end of this message, I'm going to get to the next level that just I needed to hear, but it just blows my mind that he says what he says. But um, God had called Paul to such a high calling. He knew a lot of what you know about God's calling in his life. The unique role of witnessing Christ being elevated to him, knowing him, witnessing him on the road to Damascus, the road to Damascus, seeing him, knowing him. He even talks in the last chapter about this revelation that he had received. I know my God. I know where I'm going, and I know that he's called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and somehow to take this gospel to Rome. I know that that's where I'm heading, and I know that that's what God called me to in my life. But he also heard other voices. I loved it. David said in class this morning, wisdom is not listening to every voice that fills your head. Wisdom is somehow discerning what voices in my head are from God and what voices are not from God. Last week we talked about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And when we refer to the term thorn in the flesh, we are making a reference to Paul. But when Paul used the term thorn in the flesh, he was making reference to Joshua. 
That was a term that he was familiar with in the Old Testament, something that came up over and over again in Numbers, Joshua, and Judges. The thorn in the flesh in the Old Testament, I'm going to tell you, is most likely the same as that which it is in the New. The thorn in the flesh was the opposition in the land. This is what remains in the land. This is what stands against you. And he says this, three times I pleaded with my God, remove this from me. Get this out of here. I can't do this. This, I, 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 My people, my, my kids, they're not going to survive this. God, do something about it. And now he says this. This is my third visit to you. And this last chapter, he's preparing them for a, a third potentially awkward visit. And he's coming and he's going to say, listen, I hope when I come... It's not going to go the way I anticipate that it might go. I sure hope it doesn't go like it went last time. But we need to have a talk. You and I need to sit down together. And there's two groups of people. The opposition, which Paul has, I'm not going to say he has no love for. He has love for them, but he he considers them the opposition. And the other group is his kids. And this is who he's talking about here in this group. Is this, I love you and I want to fight for your faith. But right now there is a problem between us. And it's, it's mind-blowing. I don't know when you've been there, and I hope not recently. But it's mind-blowing when, through all this other stuff that we face, everything that's on the outside, all the voices in my head, my own sin, all the good trials that I face as an individual and that you face as an individual, and the last thing that I need and the last thing that I want and the last thing that I could even fathom could happen is that one of you would become my opposition is that a brother in Christ would become what what becomes between me and my own faith and me and God, and there would somehow be a conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ. And when that's happened in my life, I've said, how is this possible that they stand before their God, and I stand before my God, and I love you with all my heart, and they love you with all that? How is it possible that there's a conflict between us? I don't get it. And that's kind of where he's going in this chapter. Um, the darkness that sometimes Satan infuses into our lives and the deception that he throws in our relationships. And he allows, he, he causes us not to see one another or to see God or to see mission or to see purpose through the lens of Christ. He says this, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we live with him to serve you. Throughout this letter, and this is this to me is one of the most important aspects of this letter, he, he continually puts himself before God. I'm just going to read verses from each of the opening chapters. Chapter 1, he says this, He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in in our hearts. In chapter two, he says this. We speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. I'm going to come back to that one. In chapter three, he says, those who turn to the Lord stand before him with unveiled faces and are being transformed into his image. 
In chapter 4, God will present us with you in his presence. In chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In chapter 6, we are the temple of God. We are in him and he in us. This is the theme of every chapter. He says, do you not understand that you stand before God right now? And when I'm healthy in my own walk and when I'm healthy in my own faith and I stand up here or I sit before before somebody with coffee or whatever, when I'm healthy, my last thought before I speak is this. I do not stand before these people. I stand before a living God right now. I stand before my God, the same God that I speak to in my closet. I speak before right now. Speak with integrity. Speak with genuine sincerity and speak as before him. Speak as you would before a very real God. Speak with that passion. Speak with that kind of love. Speak with that kind of realness. And I think about that all the time. God, help me recognize your presence. When I'm gossiping about you with another friend, help me recognize, God, you are right here. I'm living life in your presence. When I'm watching TV, whatever I'm doing, I am in the holy presence of an almighty God all the time. I said it weeks ago, I talked about it in prayer. When we talk about coming before God in prayer, it's as though I live my life over here and my healthy prayer life is over here where I say, my God, and whatever you're going to say in your prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, and then I leave. And that's instilled in us the mindset that God is here. And then we walk away when we say amen. And that somehow in your prayer, you get to say, amen, I dismiss you. But that's not how prayer works, and that's not how life before God works. Every word I speak, every action, every thought, my heart is an open book before my God. I don't get to say, amen. The prayer keeps going. My life, my marriage, my finances, everything I lift before a holy God. And this is what Paul is so, so aware, acutely aware of this fact. He lives his life before God and it keeps coming out in this book when he writes. So over and over again, he's going to say, this is my third visit to you. Three times I've pleaded with the Lord, three times, and now I'm about to come to you again And that's when he says um, what he says next. And this is kind of the theme of today's message. He says this. I want you to examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now, before I keep reading, he basically says this, man, there's a problem between us. There's a difference between us. And I'm about to come to you and we're going to work things out. But before I get there, can we both do something together? Can I ask you to sit before God? Can I ask you to stand before God and say, am I right with you right now? Is my faith right before you right now? Wouldn't that be powerful in conflicts that happen in the body of Christ? Wouldn't that be powerful if before we came together, we just said, can we do something real quick? Can we just make sure that, Jeff, before I even address my relationship with one of you, where am I with this almighty God right now? So one thing that's powerful to do, and I shared it with a friend this last week, that um, that I do occasionally in my own devotional life. You come before God in private, 
and you take out your wallet, you put it before God. This is my finances. This is my resources. This is what I've got. I put it before you. I take off my wedding ring and I put it before my God. It's my covenant, man. This is my marriage. I put it before you. You know my heart. You know my love. You know who I am. I take out my phone. I know it's cheesy. I don't know what it represents to you. But to me, it represents my relationships. This is where I text. This is where I email. This is where I send stupid pictures to people. There's my relationships. I put it out before you. My keys. This represents my direction. Where I'm going. My plans. Everything in life, I put it before you. Me and God, examine my heart. This is Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Examine me and know my ways. And see if there is a wicked way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Search my heart, God. Let me search my heart before you. And if I pass this test and I know in my heart and my integrity, I'm lifting my life before you. Sin, it's all before you. Everything, I'll put, I'll put it all before you. And if I'm right before you, then I'm ready to address my relationships. And then Paul says something that's incredible and it's so powerful. He goes on and he says this. We pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And we're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. If I understand this text right, and I may not, but if I understand this text right, what I just understood him to say is this. Listen, I want you to put yourself before God in integrity. And I'm going to put myself before God and we're going to come together. And if in your eyes, I don't pass that test. I'm not genuine. I'm not real. I don't stand before my God and I don't stand that. Then I'm fine. Because I'm glad even if I fail the tests, I'm so glad that you pass it. That's what he says. I think. Even if you look at me and you say, that man is fake, he's not real, he's not in God, even if I fail the test, I praise God that you stand before him. And throughout the book, that's what he says. I'll gladly be spent. I'll gladly be the one that sacrificed. I'll gladly take a back seat and let these super apostles take the stage. I'll gladly do that because I don't care about my honor anymore. I don't care about me. I only care that you stand firm in the Lord. And this is Paul's complete selfless prayer for the Corinthians. I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's the best movie ever made outside of It's a Wonderful Life. The best movie ever made is called The Good Lie. How many of y'all seen that movie? Have you seen this? Three of you. Repent. This movie... (laughs) The Good Lie is a true story. And it's based on uh, these refugees um, uh, out of uh, Sudan... And actually, some of the actors in the movie are actually the refugees that this story is about. It's an incredible, incredible story. And I'm going to break a massive rule today. And I'm just going to give you the movie um, and what happens because it's important. You think you're watching a movie about culture. 
and you're watching these, these Sudanese refugees and they flee for their lives as kids. Brothers and sisters are fleeing for their lives, floating down a river, pretending like they're dead to the sound of machine gun fire. They're going through it all. And finally, they're all hiding and all the, the, the people that are invading the land, the, the, the terrorists come in and one brother sacrifices his life for the rest and he stands up and give, gives himself up. And so he's taken and the others go and their lives are saved and they're brought to Kenya and they're in a refugee camp and finally somehow they make it to the United States and they find a new life in Kansas of all places. And they don't know what ice is. They've never seen ice in their life. They don't know what a phone is. And their, their ability to interact in an American society is so strange and awkward. And it's a great movie to watch just if you're talking about culture and what American culture looks like through a foreigner's eyes. It's, it's incredible. And, and, and you're watching this and you think that that's what the movie's about. And that's where the movie sets you up just to punch you in the gut. Because that's what you think it's about. And then finally, after 13 years, Theo, um, and it's cool because his name means in Greek God, but Theo is the older brother. And Theo finds out that his uh, brother might still be alive back in Kenya. And so he gets on a plane and he searches refugee camp after refugee camp after refugee camp and he's going through it all. And he's desperately searching for his brother because in his mind, his brother sacrificed his life for him. And he found a new life in America and he found a life where he got a job working at McDonald's or something. He's got it all. I call him, okay. Um, He's got it all. And then he goes back and he finds his brother. And the most beautiful scene in this movie, which I'm just going to say because everyone needs to see this. They're in the line going back to the airport going back to the States, and he realizes he could not get a visa for his brother. He could not get his brother in the United States, could not get him out of the situation. And so he gives him his passport right before they get on the plane, and he says, you are me from now on. And he takes his place, and he says, I had 13 years to enjoy my life. Now I want you to live. And I would gladly die right now. I'd gladly just go back to my life here and all the struggles I went through because I only want to see you alive. I only want to see you live. That's all I care about. This is where Paul's at when he writes this. I'm about to come to you and I'm going to put myself before God. I want you to put yourself before God. But all I care about right now is you. And I I read this and I thought, man, Jeff, what? What message do I want to bring before Metal Art today when I talk about this? And what message when I drive home? Well, the first one was this. I said, man, I, I want us to do this as a family, right? Outside of conflicts, I hope most of us aren't in conflict. But outside of that, have a moment where you just sit down before God and examine yourself. This is the second time he said it. Do you remember he said this in the first letter to the Corinthians as well when he was talking about communion? I want you to examine yourself. Now he says it again in 2 Corinthians. I'm about to meet with you. Would you please just take a look at your heart before we have this meeting? I want you to examine yourself. And the second thing I thought about is this. I was thinking about how thankful I am for some of the work I'm watching in this family here. I watched some of you sacrifice a whole lot um, 
of time and effort and energy in Vacation Bible School. Um, I was so amazed by how beautiful that was. Daniel and the teens, a bunch of people just went down to Mexico to work with orphans. I'm seeing Bob wear himself out in a beautiful way in his ministry to the homeless. And I'm seeing actually countless ones of you that have devoted yourself and invested yourself in people. I'm seeing real discipleship happen in a lot of people in this body. And I think the one thing that can wear you out are those voices in your head. I'm tired. And every time I try to invest myself in somebody, my kid or somebody else, my heart is broken again and again and again, and I'm tired of investing myself in people. And Paul steps back and he recognizes what Joshua had to recognize and what Moses had to recognize, and I pray we will get a hold of today. I'm not in this ministry alone. Don't you recognize that God is here? Don't you recognize he's in the body? He says this, he's powerful among you. And he, recogn- he sits back and he says, God doesn't, just, just like Rob said in the comments this morning, God doesn't need me. He doesn't need me in this mission. I have the privilege of just a note in the song, you know? It's kind of that way. I have the privilege of just a line in this poem. That's it. But God is bigger than this. And so even if it's in the smallest way, I pray that he would renew a zeal in us like Paul had. To step back and look at this life and to look at our mission and to look at what God is trying to do through us and say, man, I praise God that when I'm weak, that's when he's strong. And he looks at the thorns, which I believe, again, are, are the opposition. It's those people or those things in life that stand against you. And he looks at it and he says, by God's grace, he blessed me with those things so that I would not trust in myself. So that I would look at it and say, yes, it's bigger than I am. And you stand in the middle of a church that's in the middle of Fort Collins, Colorado. And the opposition in this place is incredible. The nearsightedness that is in our society. The lack of care and the lack of zeal and the lack of thirst for life. And I pray that through God's spirit and through his body in this place and through you you would have a new fire in you and that each one of us would be rekindled to engage in his work in this place. I want to lift up the body and um, I also want to lift up my own spirit before you and your spirit. And I want to just pray. um, I want to pray, if it's okay with you, um, Psalm 139. Uh, If you bow your heads, I'm just going to kind of pray one Psalm 39 with you and lift us up before God. Our God, um, you have searched us and you know us. You know when we sit and when we rise. And you perceive our thoughts from afar. You discern our going out and our lying down and you're familiar with all of our ways. Before a word is even on our tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You have hemmed us in behind and before And you have laid your hand on us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It's too lofty to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can we flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. 
make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle in the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night about me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. Darkness is as light to you. You created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you'd slay the wicked. O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do not hate those, O God, that hate you. And abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred. I count on my enemies. Search me. O God, know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Our God, we love you so much. And I pray for your spirit to work in us, in our hearts, in this body. Keep us on our knees before you. And keep our relationships with one another holy. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's stand and worship our God together.